Welcome to CISO's Insiders Podcast, powered by GRC Consulting. In this podcast, we'll be interviewing leading CISOs and security leaders in the industry for light, eye-level conversations. Here, they share advice and tips, talk about their biggest accomplishments and failures, favorite drinks, key influencers, and much more. We encourage you to walk away with at least one insight that will help you better yourself or your business. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more content, please check us out on social media. Welcome, everybody. Today, I'm speaking with uh, Barack Engel, the co-founder of uh, Immune, uh, previously a CISO in many companies <laughs> that you can, you know, to provide some more information about that in a minute. Uh, you, you're also the author of uh, two books uh, on Amazon, one of which I've read, it's called Why CISOs Fail, and this is actually the primary reason why I ask you to join me uh, in this uh, today's episode, uh, and you actually, you, I think you published recently uh, another book called The Security Hippie, uh, Security Hippie, sorry, and uh, <laughs> I'm saying hippie, <laughs> and uh, curious to learn more about that. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I see, you know, you have a very diverse uh, bio here, so maybe you could uh, step in and introduce yourself. Thank you. Um, yes. So, you know, maybe a, a slight correction there, other than the fact that I love the fact that I'm being interviewed by an Israeli because, um, you actually pronounce my name, right. And that's, uh, that's always, uh, that's always a thing. Um, you know, maybe the, the correction is that I'm still a CISO for a bunch of companies. Uh, my, perhaps my, uh, what I became known in the industry for is being the originator of the virtual CISO concept. And so this is the 20th year of me doing it. And when, um, when I came up with it, sadly, that's the sad truth. Uh, security was one of those original four-letter words that nobody wanted to learn how to spell. And so, uh, you know, here is me coming in and saying, hey, hey, this thing you don't want to talk about, why don't we make it virtual? And that's going to make it all better. Um, so you can, <laughs> uh, you can imagine that that was not an easy uh, uh, concept back in the day. It is now. Uh, and uh, just to, again, like I said earlier, to a degree, I'm, I'm somewhat associated with it. As a result of that, I've been a CISO for way too many organizations than I care to uh, to count. Yeah, and I think uh, that was uh, like how we were um, originally introduced by a mutual colleague of ours. Um, yeah, and happy to have you here and anxious to learn more about, uh, you know, two of the books, like um, the, I don't want to say the old one, but the first book and, uh, and the new one that, uh, that you just uh, published uh, recently. And um, maybe you could uh, start off by, uh, you know, just as a couple of icebreakers, can you share your marital status and favorite drink? Although I've read in the book that you're not a big drinker, but uh, still. Um. So I am, uh, I, I live with my, you know, we have a, our internal terminology for this is Fifi, fake wife, right? Uh, my girlfriend of about a decade um, and divorced otherwise, uh, father to two children, uh, the youngest of which is about to become, uh, to graduate high school. And so uh, getting into those, uh, the golden years between that and when they start having their own. And uh, as far as favorite drink, typically it's uh, something that involves uh, involves a good scotch. Um, so could be in various different 
uh, combinations, but I even I even recently started making something I call an Israeli cream, which is coffee. Oh. Yes, it's a version of Irish cream. It's coffee, uh, uh, scotch, and whipped cream on top, rather than. Um, so it's kind of the uh, the the cheaper, crappier version of Irish cream. <laughs> Got it. So is it scotch or is it bourbon or both? Uh, scotch in my case. So but sure, I'll do a good bourbon. You know, I started experimenting with bourbon since I moved here to the U.S. a few years ago. But uh, yeah, I, still single malt is my go-to uh, typically. Uh, scotch and Scottish single malt, I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, great. Thank you. And you know, I've read uh, through your book and a lot of the, the things that you've wrote, that you've written, you know, made me laugh. <laughs> Others made me, you know, just pause and think. But uh, I, I, I definitely, you know, think... Um, a lot of our, you know, a lot of uh, pr practitioners in the industry, as well as CISOs, really, you know, really need to put your book as a, as a must read, like really able to, to hit the nail on the head on so many topics. And, and again, I'm not sure when the first one was published, but uh, I'm assuming a few years back, correct? Uh, so Why CISOs Fail was published in, I believe, December of 2017. Okay. And, um, in what I, I still think is the greatest compliment I received, I've received about it, it uh, earlier this year was nominated and accepted into the Cyber Canon project. So, um, which caught me entirely by surprise. Uh, they don't actually let you know that it's happening in the background when it's happening. You just find out about it uh, afterwards. Uh, the, my second book, The Security Hippie is, uh, in fact, I got the email this morning that all the files were sent to the printer. So, if you've pre-ordered it, you should be getting it fairly soon, I, I assume. Got it. And, uh, you know, as I said, uh, I could uh, relate to many of the topics that you're talking about. And, you know, in that book, you're talking about uh, um, like the, the, the part of a CISO has been, and I think you've identified it pretty early on in the game that the CISO is actually you know, more of a business role or maybe it should be a, more of a business role rather than an IT role or any other technology related role, whether it's SDLC or DevOps or DevSecOps or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, but you know, the first thing that I've, that I've read that really made me like, uh, like think hard, you mentioned hard taco security or soft taco security, one of those, could, could you care to elaborate? Oh sure, that's a that's a uh, an idea. Not honestly, the joke isn't even mine. Uh, it came from uh, a fellow called Steve Levinson, who I've known from uh, many many years. And in a conversation we had, we had uh, this came up as we were discussing the how silly some people are with respect to to uh, to security. And uh, you know, it's just a reflection of the the notion that uh, you must have heard of defense in depth, right? But um, you know, a lot of people think about security still to this day in 2022 uh, as a perimeter problem. As long as we really harden our perimeter, then you know everything on the inside is going to stay fresh and yummy. And of course, uh, you know the 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 analogy here. Well, you know, your hard perimeter is the hard taco shell, but uh, you know, on the inside you get all the juicy stuff. Last next time you take a bite on one and the all the fun stuff is is 
spilling on the other end and and going down on your pants or your shirt you, you know you might uh, you might think of it and say yeah that's what the the effectiveness of of strong perimeter security is uh and and the general idea is yeah you can't you can't just surround your your environment but that is that's a technology analogy and uh and so it's more of a more of a way to illustrate it with an image uh you know to go to the other bigger point um you know security today to some degree the development of the discipline is mirroring what happened with it back in the late 80s and early 90s the early cios were uh, it admins right i mean that's mm -hmm. that, that's who they were they they came from i don't know system administrators for windows windows networks right or perhaps from some if they came from academia it might have been unix or linux well unix really not linux um not at the time and uh and sort of started to to make their way into into this fancier title as organizations started to rely more on technology but initially it was all about the technology right that's how we all thought about it cio was the the master it geek and that's what's happening with CISOs right now to some degree it's mirroring the same progress but if you look at cios today they're a business function they're a recognized business function sure they need to understand technology to a degree but but it's really crucial that they understand business operations um, and how technology supports or uh, you know perhaps doesn't support in some cases uh, those business functions and the goals of the organization and CISOs ultimately are going to have to do the same thing it's the same sort of um, of transition that's going to have to happen it's just that the industry itself the the role the discipline is simply not as mature uh, yet it is still maturing. We're still very young in security. And so we still tend to look at it because we're still very young with it. Still, a lot of us tend to look at it through that technology lens. That will by necessity disappear. And, and I think, um, you know, uh, reading through your book, and uh, I remember one example where you think outlined or described, um, you know, a sales call that you were a part of. And, um, you know, it, it's pretty evident that you identified that a CISO is or needs to be uh, a business function pretty early in the game. What led you and, and when was it that you that you came to realize that that was the case? Wow. Well, so <laughs> before I even answer that, here's a little thing about human memory, right? We, we tend to think that human memory, and you, you can look at that as a lot of research into this, right? We tend to think of human memory as a sort of recording machine, right? And we rely on our memories as, as, as if they were uh, true. We feel them to be true, right? And, uh, and yet the reality is that human memories are extremely uh, malleable even seconds after they are formed. The actual purpose of human memory is not to record events. It is to record your emotional response to those events. So you know, that's what your brain is supposed to do with memory, right? And the idea behind it, the evolutional, the, the biological reason that that exists is that if you are able to create, to store that emotional response to an event that has occurred, in the future, you may able to be able to recall that emotion, that feeling in a situation that is similar to the one that, that created the initial memory, which is the feeling associated with an event, um, in order to, to then rely on that to support your future judgment and guidance. Now, why do I bring this up? 
because you ask me a, a history question. You ask me the question of when did I come up with that? And what I'm afraid and what I'm trying to say in advance is I'm going to give you an answer, but it could be that this answer is just by memory per se. Um, and it might not be necessarily an accurate one. Well, that was probably the most, um, you know, um, elaborate way of, um, you know, <laughs> going around the bush and really putting all the, all the legal verbiage out of the way just to cover your own, uh, yeah, I'll just stop. I, I'm, not, I'm not covering my ass. I just, I, honestly, I find it fascinating. Um, uh, you asked me about my, my marital status. My significant under is a kick-ass integral coach. And this kind of stuff constantly comes my way every day as she talks about the things that she's learning in her discipline. And it just fascinates me, uh, memories in particular. So with that said, to answer your question, um, uh, I believe uh, that I, I came up with it pretty early on when I started using that term or virtual, actually it wasn't even CISO. The word CISO wasn't, you know, the term wasn't super popular. It was virtual chief security officer. So when I started it was VCSO. And it was uh, as early as when I tried to go on my own, which is 2003 and trying to come up with this concept. And the concept I had at the time wasn't as well defined. It was along the lines of, it seems to me that we are still in this process of relying more and more on technology as um, a you know, key component of businesses. We still haven't made the transition of going say into the paperless office, right? This took about 30 years since the promise was made in the late eighties and when it became true just a few years ago, uh, especially with the, the cloud. Um, and, but it did seem like organizations in technology in particular, that's why I was trying to target, um, would need to be able to reassure their business customers about uh, their security program. So they would need to mature it in a way that would be externally presentable. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the foundation of this idea. And uh, the behind that was the problem is that security is going to grow rapidly. That was, you know, the crazy idea at the time, right? The, the discipline was super niche and there's not going to be enough talent to, for people to hire from. Uh, over time, it also developed to the recognition that many organizations don't actually need all this talent. So there's a, there's a bit of a problem in security, which is a very specialized field. And you can go and hire a full team. You can hire a bunch of SMEs. But for most organizations, uh, you just don't have enough work to legitimately give them. You know, and that is probably the thing that, that I say that upsets people the most. Uh, even a CISO, if you're a small, mid-sized, in many cases, even a large organization, you don't have a full full week to give a proper CISO to do a proper job, right? You just don't need them that much. Uh, and certainly not a, you know, app security expert where really what you need is a few hours of their time every week at best to kind of support, provide a support function for your, for your dev team. Um, and yet we're all chasing the same people and trying to hire them, uh, hire them at ever higher salaries and compensation to do jobs that are not full-time jobs. And what happens when you hire a whole bunch of experts to do, you know, to do, you know, little, but they are supposed to do, to show that they're working more. They're not going to just sit there and kind of idly, you know, twiddling their thumbs and, and, you know, doing nothing. They're going to find things for them to do. 
for themselves to do. And security is is a um, is a field where you have the holy trifecta, right? It's everybody's afraid of it. Most people don't understand it very well, but they all know that they need it, right? It's the trifecta of fear. And um, and so what ends up happening is that you have all these strong experts, SMEs in the field. They're all walking around, you know, finding things to do. And security is a field where you can always find things to do, right? It never ends. Um, and that is the very moment that the ocean starts boiling, right? Everybody always says, let's not boil the ocean securing. And everybody boils the ocean and securing. That is why the ocean gets boiled. You have a whole bunch of people that are very good at what they do, legitimately don't have that much to do if they were to be honest and admit what they really need to do to support the business needs. And so they go around and security, you know, has this tendency to interfere with what everybody else is doing by, by its nature and the way that we tend to look at it. And so all of these thoughts were combining over a period of the first three or four years of me doing this by myself. That led to the creation of my company that I still have today, Immune, and, and the formalization of this idea as whatever, I can use bombastic words, the methodology to manage security, whatever, but basically just an idea. Let's, let's see if we can find a way to mature a lot of organizations at once, but incrementally and appropriately. Instead of going into the growth curve for a technology firm and doing that, which is security is famous for doing, let's look at the growth curve and come in and see if we can kind of support it. And, and that means I'm going to finish. I know it's a very long-winded answer. I'm going to finish in a second with one more thought um, uh, with, with, with this respect is that there is, in my opinion, a greater risk in doing too much security than in doing too little security. And that is another statement that tends to upset people a lot in this industry. Uh, but because security interferes with everybody else so quickly and so easily, doing too much of it can stop business from being able to execute on its business goals. And, and that, that has a much greater cost than the vast majority of patches not being deployed. Well, where to start? I mean, where to start in responding? <laughs> so uh, I can definitely, you know, see you upsetting so many other practitioners in the industry. And, um, but how would you explain then the dissonance between, you know, the amount, the, the sheer amount of, the vast amount of uh, job posting out there for all kinds of security professionals from head of security to CISO to, you know, sec ops or, you know, SOC operator or any, I mean, there is a shortage, I think, I think the last number I remember is a shortage of about 3 million cybersecurity practitioners in the US alone. I might be off here with the, with the numbers. Like, how would you explain that dissonance? I mean, you taking into consideration what you just explained and your train of thought. Well, I think, so let's, let's go back, let's revisit what we just discussed, right? We have a huge mismatch between the needs of organizations the way that organizations are attempting to fill those needs and the available talent pool or the skill set in the marketplace to satisfy those needs, right? What do companies do? They attempt to monopolize the labor, right? The, and, you know, this goes back to Peter Drucker, right? We can have this conversation too. The man was a true genius, right? He came up 80 years, 80 years ago, 80 years ago. That's incredible. With the notion that saying that in a knowledge economy, the, there's going to be a major shift because 
uh, in the previous like, the industrial economy, right, the owner of the machines, of the factory floor, of the machines on the factory floor owned the means of production. In a knowledge economy, the employee owns the means of production. The means of production is in your head, yeah. right? And so uh, if you walk away and you go somewhere else, you are taking the means of production with you. It's not that the owner gets to keep your brain. Um, and so, but companies are still thinking in those terms, right? The term human resources is a fantastic reflection of that, even though it's one that we all kind of toss about casually because it seems to be standard. And, and so they attempt to monopolize the means of production. We want to own the machines, but we don't own the machines. But that creates a mismatch. The mismatch starts right there. We have a limited talent pool because the field is young and immature and there's not enough people doing it. The fear, the holy trifecta of fear, causes everybody to go and, and you know imagine that they need a lot of their needs, you know, filled around this field, um, and now and immediately, which creates dramatic competition for this very small pool of talent. It's expanding, but we're in a transition period. In ten or twenty years, this problem doesn't is not going to exist. It exists today, and then companies monopolizing people's time. Right. Mm -hmm. and, you know, if you could actually convince a whole bunch of security practitioners that, come on, let's admit the truth. You need to give this company 10 hours and this company five hours and this other company 10 hours and take an extra 15 hours to just enjoy the rest of your week. Right. And get the same kind of pay and get the companies to accept that model. Right. Then you would you would instantly like this. You would solve the existing talent shortage and would be matched properly. Um, to the comp to the organization's needs, but that's not how the labor market is designed. No. That's not what we're trying to do, and so and so that's what's causing the this kind of crazy situation where where really really good CISOs, right, the ones that are really worth their their money, their their salary, are going to start at seven figures. I know people don't like it when I say that, but the really good ones, that's what they're going to charge you. Yeah, and, and you know. I think uh, knowing the numbers in the market, I I think yeah, you're not way off. I mean, it's 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 in that ballpark. Um, oh, I'm not off at all. <laughs> no, no, I know, I know. Uh, and and you know, thank you again for this uh, very honest conversation. I'm I'm pretty sure your your answers here would uh, you know would make some waves, <laughs> but uh, I I enjoy. It. Thank you. Um, Thank you and, for letting me. Th thank you for letting me. You know, ramble this way. I, I know. Events, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but so, you know, when I think so, when just just kind of tie this back to the beginning of the concert, this is why I wrote why CISOs fail. Right, that was the the initial initial impetus. Look, can we steep, please stop pretending? Can we please stop using phraseology like "oh, the things I don't know that I don't know"? Come on, we're not dealing with national security. Please, let's let's stop all of this like hype and hysteria and panic driving of anything to do with infosec it's just a discipline it's it's like any other discipline you need to be good at what you do to make good judgment calls every day and have good relationships with other people in order to you gotta keep you know this is the, and the other thing right about security practitioners we are so so many of us are so stuck in the mind of mindset of technology we kind of think just in technology terms but you're dealing with people you're not dealing with machines. You're dealing with people. People are what matter. Your relationship with those people matter. People don't trust you because you are presenting yourself as a person that's not easy to handle, not easy to deal with, not easy to talk to. You're like this authority figure that, that is kind of unpleasant. And then you're surprised 
that you have bad relationships and you can't get what you need done unless you use levers like compliance, right? How many times do we hear the, oh, who's going to be, if we get breached, who's going to be the last person to close the door and turn off the lights? I mean, come on. (laughs) Seriously. I mean, for that, I'm going to say, let's look at the largest, most destructive in terms of, of the level of harm breach in the history of the world. It's not Yahoo. It's Equifax. When you think of the level of data that was stolen from a from a uh, uh, organization that is again not in national security, not in government terms, but a, a private company, if you will, or a publicly traded yeah. company, publicly then, traded, but in the, the financial space with a lot right. of uh, personal information. What happened? What happened to Equifax? How long did it take them to recover their their share price to where it was be- the day before the breach? Do you know? No, I don't. About ten months. That's what it took, right? Ultimately, did they lose any business? No. A couple of people lost their jobs. We had a, a whole bunch of, of newspapers and journalists, you know, getting a little bit more sales for their stuff happening. Some vendors got some contracts that they perhaps wouldn't have gotten otherwise from Equifax. But in the grand scheme of things, in that horrible breach, that thing that was just mind-blowingly destructive, something legitimate happened to the business of Equifax? No, nothing whatsoever. Did anything, did anybody go stop going shopping at TJ Maxx or Target because of the stuff that they, no. So oh, come no. on, let's stop all these, pre- let's, enough with the pretending. <laughs> you know, we have this word in Hebrew, right? Tachles. Enough with the, the pretending, please. Yeah. I actually, I argue uh, the same mostly around privacy. You know what my, my stance is, and although you know I'm in this field and we provide cybersecurity and privacy services, I mean it's my personal belief that there is no privacy. I don't believe in privacy. I don't think privacy exists. And uh, I know you know a lot of organizations and a lot of regulators out there they talk a lot about privacy, very uptight, very stressed, very you know self righteous. I would say, and you know what you just said also reminded me, I, I was in like in one of those industry events a few years back in Florida, I was in, a, in an infosec event and there was a guy there like, uh, I'm not sure if he was a keynote speaker or not, but he gave out a speech and he basically referred to the, to CISOs nowadays as rock stars. And, you know, it just blew my mind thinking of like, how cocky can you get? <laughs> I mean, and, and it's been my experience that a lot of, uh, you know, it, I'm not going to say Caesars, but a lot of people in this industry are just so stuck up and, you know, take themselves way too seriously. And, you know, I agree with you on that. <laughs> but um, yeah, again, it's very refreshing. Well, so privacy is an interesting one. I have a, I have another thing that I, I love to talk about with that. Um, people constantly, I, I call this the delusion of self-importance. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the, it's the idea that, okay, well, the NSA sees everything that I do, right? Edward Snowden, right? Whole thing. Nobody cares. Fine. Mm-hmm. Nobody cares. You're not yeah. that important. I'm not that important. In yeah. fact, the, the very few people who might be important are aware of the fact that they are important are using burner phones. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, I, sure, we're all being surveilled all the time. Uh, and it is delusional to imagine that we're not and there's something we can do about it, but it is also delusional to imagine that we matter to anybody, except as an anonymous profile that somebody can direct more ad dollars towards. 
Yeah. And at the end of the day, that's kind of the world we, it's a trade-off that we've accepted as a society. By the way, interesting conversation about this back in, I want to say 2011 or something. You could probably find the recording. This was before uh, Facebook IPO. Maybe I'm getting the, the dates wrong. Um, I called in, are you familiar with Michael Krasny and his show on NPR? Um, I love that. No, I don't think so. All right. So I called in because they had a conversation about privacy and Facebook and how to solve the problem. And I, I still think that because I called in and saying, hey, here is a really simple way to look at it, which I think still is going to work extremely well. Right. To this day, you know, we're trying to figure out all these ways of, of how to solve regulatorily the privacy issue. And, and it's a very I think it's a very Israeli kind of mindset here, but it basically says, look. We, because Facebook is public and we have financial statements for Facebook, can very easily determine a range of value for each user in the network to Facebook, right? We can come mm -hmm. up with an annual value by looking at the company's uh, uh, 10Qs and 10Ks and say, okay, this is more or less what a user is worth to Facebook. So regulatorily, let's create a scheme that every year updates, creates a number based on their financial reporting, right? That says this, this is the amount that annually a user is worth to you. And then you are now required Facebook for the next year to offer any user who so chooses to redeem their, their ad value to you by giving them, and I use the term privacy shield, which became ironic later on um, uh, for other reasons, as you know. And mm -hmm. um, that means that they will not be part of the ad you know, campaigns, if you will, they're not going, they're basically going to gain privacy when what privacy means anything in the world of Facebook. Um, and I bet you that 99.9% .9 of the users are not going to choose to do it, but those that are conscious and do care will at least have that option. They redeem their value to the company uh, for the year and in return, they get this illusion of privacy. And the funniest thing for me that I, I will always remember um, is that they just didn't get it. The, the panel, the expert panel, their own privacy, just didn't get the suggestion, but it's a very simple one. And I think even today it can still work really, really well because what it does is remove the tension that you cannot resolve between the needs of the social media company and the needs of the regulator and the needs of the privacy watchdogs and the desires of the consumer, right? It kind of resolves all these tensions by simplifying it into a choice that anybody can understand. It's not complicated. It's not a hard thing to grasp. Um, so anyway, I mean, we can have this, this conversation for <laughs> yeah. as long as you like. <laughs> and, and, you know, we started off this conversation by talking about the, the CISO as part of the, oh, as a business function, basically, in maturing organizations. And there is a question I always ask when I, um, you know, talk to other CISOs in my podcast. Um, I also ask about the tension between, you know, the, um, the CISO and the IT or the CISO and the IT organization or the CIO. And, you know, reading through your book, you actually uh, mentioned that in your, in your opinion, the best, um, I think you mentioned best partner um, or the best uh, persona to be working with um, for the CISO would be probably the VP sales or an, an equivalent position. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. So it is, I, I think I do constrain it to some degree, uh, which is in organizations that have, that sell to other organizations in, in B2, so B2B, in B2C organizations, that's this distinction, of course, is different because you're dealing, so to, to kind of lay the stage here, B2B organizations, it's um, is, a, is when you play in that world, you expect both sides to be adults, 
right? They deal with each other through commercial obligations captured in a contract, and everybody assumes that each side knows what they're doing. In a B2C organization, we transform into the world of corporate nanny for everybody, for all the consumers, right? You know, suddenly the assumption is that consumers are babies and children, and it is the job of the organization that serves them to keep them safe from, you know, monsters under their bed. That's pretty much captured in regulatory regimes, especially in privacy, but in the way we also think, uh, you know, the entire economy and perhaps our society is arranged that way. So going back to a B2B uh, uh, type of organization, in the B2B organization, the primary, especially when the, the seller, the vendor is still growing. So it's not a very large organization. It's not a very large company like an Oracle, right? It's maybe an up and comer or a company that's still trying to carve some turf or perhaps a new product line. What they're trying to do is they're trying to grow, right? That is the primary nature of, of any organization. Uh, and carve out more, more market share. And to carve out more market share in the B2B organization, you have to sell to those other Bs. And those other Bs are increasingly going to ask you questions about security because that's how the world is advancing. Mm -hmm. And so if you do not instinctively and in your guts, in your bones, in your blood, understand that your primary role as a security leader in an organization like that one is to support the business's efforts to sell to other organizations, right? And, and use that as the lens through which you determine what activities should be prioritized and how you should determine where to go with your security program, you're failing at your job. Just right there, you're done. You, you have completely forgot what it is that you're there to do. You have been hired to help the company achieve its goals. That's true for any job. It's, it amazes me that I have to spell it out in security as if it's special. It doesn't matter what you do in organization. In a, in a for-profit organization, your job is to support that. And apparently, this is some magic thinking or, or headache or whatever it might be. No, just start training yourself. You have a C in your name. You're a chief of something. So if you really believe that you're a chief of something, I don't care what it is, right? You know, chief janitorial services, right? You still have to support the business goals, right? Uh, it, it really doesn't matter. Um, that's really where that comes from. And so I always say, hey, be really friendly with, with your enterprise sales team. Understand them, work with them, give them language they can use, help them understand things in a way that, learn their language, go spend time as a sales engineer and learn how money comes through the door that way. If you're never going to get the chance to, to run PNL, which I think is, is a fantastic experience for, for any leader in an organization of any kind, then at least try to get an adjunct sort of role for a little while and learn how this works. Because that's what feeds you. And that's what feeds your colleagues, not your competence and expertise in vulnerabilities. That, that doesn't feed anybody except your ego, perhaps. So what would you say or what advice would you give to an organization that still believes that uh, security is or should be a part of IT then? You know, I mean, where it's stuck in the organization matters less than what the leaders are like, right? You know, if you have enlightened people that understand, if you have a good CIO, right? Typically, if you're in an IT organization, there's a CIO or CTO at the top. If that person understands the uh, the role properly and what's it, what it needs to do, then by all means, that's fine. 
Uh, if not, then you're kind of getting into where do you go next? And by the way, this leads to the other problem. See, so right now our, it's a dead end job, right? There's nowhere yeah. to go, yeah. right? So uh, we have to solve that problem too. The career pathing for CISOs is, is uh, I think, is a, is a mounting issue in the industry and that we're all kind of ignoring and we can't continue to ignore. But, you know, where do you go from there and who you should be reporting to? One of the suggestions I make in, in why CISOs fail at the very end is that uh, perhaps you want to have the CISO report to the COO because like the COO, the CISO tends to be internally fo focused. You know, uh, they're, they're, you know, very important key, key component for the CISO while it supports externally facing functions, the role is focused on the internal workforce or environments or internal technology map or whatever it might be uh, and how to make it work better for the organization work more smoothly. So it's, a, it's kind of a operational adjunct. And so it seems to make sense that that might be the, the proper pathing. It is also the proper pathing because if you actually look at the career pathing for CIOs, it is to transition to a COO mm -hmm. job. And a CISO mm -hmm. should be more or less, you know, as a peer for the CIO if, if they're good at what they do. And so it seems to make sense that that, that would be where, where the department should go. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. And, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. So I, I want to, I, ideally, I'd like to cover two more topics before asking you, uh, you know, just to introduce your new book, The Security Hippie. Um, so one, one topic, and I know this could be a long one, so let's just try to contain uh, contain that. But uh, you have a chapter in your in your book called uh, "Comply Oh My," and you know, I believe you're you're talking about compliance as a business enabler. Should we do compliance? Do we really need to do compliance? And so on and so forth. Can you you know provide some insights? Absolutely, another favorite topic. I have many. Right. So let's um, let's start with basic. First of all, let's let's start with separating between regulatory compliance and voluntary compliance. Regulatory compliance is stuff you have to do, and this is mission critical for the company, for the business. Right. Financial regulators, healthcare regulators, whatever it might be. By the way, uh, there's a huge difference between HIPAA compliance and high trust and what have you. But don't want to bore you with all of those distinctions. And then you have voluntary compliance, which is things like SOC 2 and ISO 27001. Now. Voluntary compliance, and this is where I think people, again, um, uh, fall or go wrong all the time. These are things that are done for one reason and one reason only. I, I honestly, there's no other excuse for SOC 2 in any organization that chooses to do it. Other Let me guess. Than they, Let me it's, guess. A, it's a sales tool. Yeah. That's all it is. It's a sales tool. It should not be driving your security program, even if you're used to driving security programs through compliance. It should be a and a and thought of in that one way, which is this report is useful for the sales team uh, in order to provide the reassurance that your business customers in a B2B environment uh, need in order to, if you will, smooth the wheels of commerce. It's not a surprise that so many B2C organizations don't have SOC 2s because they have nobody to prove this to. Um, consumers don't care, but other businesses do, similarly with, with ISO. Um, and so 
you know, understanding what the role is, is also the point where you're starting to, or the role of the certification is, understand, is understanding how to, to really treat it. Uh, I'm not managing my security program through the SOC 2 lens. I'm not managing my security program through the ISO, certifi ISO certificate. That's not what I'm doing. I'm creating these programs, these compliance programs for the purpose of supporting sales. And so it is entirely okay to think of them precisely in those terms of, okay, what do I need to do in order to get this thing painlessly? I, I think I encourage people to think about it that way. I think this is exactly where companies like Vanta go wrong and cause more, more harm than good for their customers. Because what happens with these automated evidence collection type um, uh, tools is that they ignore the realities of your environment. They don't care whether there's a part of the environment that maybe you're actively making a judgment call not to really look at, right? They will collect everything from everywhere. There are soulless machines and give it to the auditor who now has to ask you questions about it, even though they would prefer not to because we all understand what the purpose of the certification is and they are getting paid a fixed amount of money even if they have to spend extra work to do this kind of stuff where both sides can nod their head and agree that it really isn't very important, but because of the letter of the law of the standard, now they have to ask you about it and you have to do all the, the dance around how to justify it. It wouldn't even start if the information was properly curated in the first place, like a good human compliance manager can do. So that's a, that's a bit of a sidebar about, about why I, I have such a huge distaste for, um, for these tools, but they make an unsafe assumption. They make an assumption that the purpose of SOC 2 is to care about security. That is not the purpose of what SOC 2. The purpose of SOC 2 is a sales tool. That's all it does. There's no other reason for its existence in any organization that uses it. Uh, the same, and the same goes for the ISO certificate and a few others. PCI is kind of like in the middle in some ways because it's something that is required of you to do in, in a specific industry, but it's required not by a regulator, but by a private uh, consortium, which is you know the PCI uh, council, council, right? Uh, there's no regulatory impact to PCI. Um, uh, it's, so it's more along the lines of, you know, are you going to be able to continue to operate most, most efficiently, efficiently in the network of credit card uh, processing, meaning your interchange fees, can you keep them the lowest as possible, that sort of thing. And do you want to avoid those penalties that American Express might, might levy on you if you don't submit the right paperwork in the right time. But otherwise, they are more akin to SOC2 and, and ISO than they are to, say, HIPAA for a covered entity um or or financial regulations you know and and so I, all i'm trying to do with that chapter is to help people recast the role of these certifications in their mind i'm not saying go and lie to your auditors people always then turn around because nobody can do anything that has gradations anymore everybody is all about black or white it's binary either you do it one way or you do it another way, right? There's nothing in the middle. There's no shades of gray about anything in our world anymore, in anything that we do in society. I'm talking about shades of gray. I'm not telling you, oh, you know, just go and do the whatever you can to fool the auditor to, into checking the boxes for you. That's not the message. The message is don't go so crazy with this to actually think that this that, that the standard is somehow now a way in which you can measure the effectiveness of your security program. 
What you're measuring the effective of a security program by is can you obtain the certificate in a painless, in as painless of a way as possible to support your company sales growth? That's it. That's the, that's the question you're trying to answer. And the answer to that, the way that you obtain that answer has so many more shades of gray than here is all the evidence and, and you know, tell me what to do, right? Uh, that's the purpose of that chapter. Okay, got it, interesting. Can you talk a bit about, quickly introduce your uh, new book, the new upcoming book, Security Hippie, and maybe talk a bit about the difference between that book and why CISOs fail? Right. So why CISOs fail was supposed to be, really is a book uh, that is focused on that one question, right? It's, a, it's more of a, it's a bit of an educational book, although my style is never particularly academic, since I'm not one. Um, security Hippie comes, uh, comes at, at the, at the security industry in a completely different way. Uh, it is a response to my sense that the security industry is full of people that are constantly chasing technology and being very severe and unpleasant to deal with. And, um, and the media not really understanding the, the field. So just kind of reporting on the, the fire and brimstone and all the drama of it without really explaining anything. And honestly, just it's, it's a fear-based field. And the reality is, as we all know, anybody who's a practitioner in this field, security is all around us all the time. It's not something that just happens to, to scary people or to IT people or to geeks or what have you. It happens to all of us all the time, but nobody ever really talks to us at kind of eye level uh, about the field. And so um, my, my goal with security is to make the field more relatable and do it through stories. It's purely a stories book. There's nothing educational about it. I, I share a bunch of stories from my career and I have a lot of stories to share because of the particular nature of, of inventing VC. So the VC so concept and all these environments I've been in. Um, and uh, in, a, in a way that is, uh, I hope funny, uh, but mostly relatable. And these are not the, the things that hit the news. These are not the crazy stories we hear about because there's already plenty of news outlets to report on those. These are the things that happen every day in all the time, all around us that impact all of us. There may be a little bit mundane, but each of the stories may have had some angle that made it a little bit uh, unusual or, or funny or, or relatable. And that's all it is. And I, I do share what I learned from each of this story, but it's again, not in, a, not in an educational or academic fashion. It's more uh, perhaps snarky commentary. And, um, and that's, that's what the book is. And I, I hope folks can use it and sort of maybe take a kind of a breath and say, ah, all right, you know, yeah, this is what it really is, you know, and instead of constantly being tense and, and you know, this thing is the, all the, all the fear-based, let's, let's laugh about it a little bit. And um, I, I can tell you, I provide plenty of ammunition to laugh at me. I am the, I'm going, I'm happy to be the, the scapegoat for everybody's uh, release of tension. Um, uh, through the book, so the the main person that is embarrassed but should be embarrassed by all of it is me. Nobody else. There's no attempt there to embarrass organizations or other people. Okay, thank you. So uh, I think you know I didn't have uh, enough time to ask you all the questions that I wanted. In particular, there was 
you know, one topic I wanted to really unravel, but maybe we could uh, schedule a follow-up recording at some point uh, in the future. Uh, I'm talking about uh, removing of sales barriers. I think um, you you had uh, you can you can provide some you know tips for um, all kinds of um, people out there. So uh, definitely would want to do a retake at some point, or actually, uh, um, continue, uh, what's the word? Uh, um, follow up. Yeah, like, like a follow up for uh, for this. Uh, but uh, anyway. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, the, the honest conversation. And um, I will tag you on this uh, post when it comes live. So if you get any you know, blowback or any fire, it's on you. Oh, I'm used to it. <laughs> I welcome it. <laughs> any, any, um, any final notes? Just thank you for having me. And thank you for letting me uh, you know, rant a little bit. Um, and uh, you know, hope, hopefully, this uh, this serves you well. And I, I enjoyed the conversation. So thanks. Yeah, same here. Thank you.